Our guest today is a professional realtor who's been in a sort of cold war against our city's powerful real estate interests and his fellow realtors. At issue is the local Realtors Association, how they choose to spend their political dollars, which candidates and issues they choose to support, and whether or not rank-and-file realtors have any choice in the matter. It's a really fascinating look behind the curtain of power in Spokane. His name is Gene Brake. He's a pretty progressive guy, not originally from Spokane, but his partner is, and they moved here together about 10 years ago. They bought a house in the Emerson Garfield neighborhood, and Gene quickly began organizing with the neighborhood association there, a neighborhood association his father-in-law had previously been a president of. So he's continuing generational work in Spokane. He's also a really fun follow on social media. He does not pull punches, uh, and that's actually where I first came across him, was in the uh, in the trenches of shitposting on Facebook. We'll get to all of that, and I think you're going to really love Gene as a person. But this is about more than a squabble between colleagues in an insular field. Real estate, in a really important way, underpins so much of our lives. It's literally the structure by which our civilization, such as it is, is broken up for people. Where we live, what we own, where we work, how we get to work is impacted by these things. I'm sure we all know by now that Spokane is in crisis. We have a housing crisis which is a real estate crisis. We have been in crisis for at least a couple years, and the writing was on the wall long before that. We've talked about that in any number of previous episodes. We should have and could have seen this coming. We may have, but didn't take any action. And now there are no signs of the crisis ending. There is not enough housing in our city, not by a long shot. Not enough is being built. And all of that has to do with our real estate industry and the people who are in it. And especially when we're talking about homes people can purchase and own, today's housing crisis becomes tomorrow's retirement crisis. Let me explain what I mean here. In the post-war era, so all of our entire lives, unless you're like Clint Eastwood or older, 94, you know, people who may have been able to remember the before times, before World War II, there are vanishingly few of those people left. So for almost all of us, everyone living in America in the last 75 years, the grand bargain that was hatched to maintain the prosperity of the wartime economy was a federally subsidized housing boom. It was the suburbs. We stopped building tanks and started building ranchers. Everyone was supposed to get a car in the garage, which meant autonomy, and more importantly, a piece of real estate to call their own, which means equity, wealth. To be clear, this was overwhelmingly a plan for white people, but there were no shortage of white people, and so it became the plan for America. America's plan for perpetual prosperity. To preserve the tremendous kinetic energy of war by turning it inward and putting it to work, building every family, again, overwhelmingly every white family, some white, non-white people too, a little castle, a little box on the hillside. Little boxes all same. And so for 70 years, the home was a vital piece of wealth for people. And it still is, if you can afford it. And over time, actually, it's become an even bigger piece of the pie. Our grandparents mostly had pensions to live off of in retirement, if they were middle class, right? Our parents maybe had 401ks, in some cases, but not all, which aren't as good as pensions, but at least they're something. Many millennials, and even a lot of Gen Xers, don't even have savings, much less retirement. Half of Gen Xers don't even have a retirement account, and only like 36% are actively adding to it. To be clear, Gen Xers are people who are in their 40s and 50s, have no retirement at all, or aren't actively adding to it. So that is a whole other disaster waiting to happen 10, 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road, when these people need to retire and age out of the workforce. By the way, if you're a Gen Xer with no retirement, 
hit me up, let's talk. Would love to bring that into this conversation. But back to housing, with less savings and with vanishing retirement prospects, home equity becomes an ever bigger part of the wealth that helps people survive once they get to retirement age. For lots of folks, it's maybe the only thing they really have to get through. And for those who don't have it, those who were never able to afford to buy a home, which includes many millennials, are going to be so much more screwed later in life. We are winnowing and winnowing and winnowing possibilities to build wealth in this country and because we have no safety net to speak of or very little social security cannot even come close to covering someone's needs once they reach retirement age once they age out of the workforce and again if we just tell people to work longer that only impacts further generations down the road who want to start their careers but they can't because grandpa still has to work they can't become the entry-level position to replace the retiree because the retiree never retires and therefore they never get to start their career, right? This is a cyclical problem that has already impacted generations. That was part of the problem with millennials early in their careers. There weren't enough jobs because lots of boomers were having to work longer. This is a systemic, cyclical, generations-long problem. But now this whole housing piece seems to be coming to a head because prices are up. Maybe it'll be another bubble like 2009. Maybe it won't. It's not clear that it will be to me, although I'm not an economist. But you got to ask yourself, maybe for the first time in three quarters of a century, right? Are we living through the end of that grand bargain? What happens when people can no longer afford to buy houses? What happens to the American dream, that abstraction for mostly white people, whatever the hell it ever meant, but for individual people, what happens to the American dream when you can't buy a home? And what happens to the American economy? What happens to all of us? And if the picture those two questions paint is as tar black bleak as it seems, then what the hell, if anything, can we do to make housing? Buying, of course, but also just renting, for God's sake. I'd settle for anything at this point. We need it all like yesterday. What can we do to make housing affordable again? And how soon can we start? We'll talk about all of that more with Gene Brake, professional realtor and professional pain in the ass of our Realtors Association, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Maybe we could start with you just telling us a little bit about your background. How long have you lived in Spokane and then how long have you been working in the real estate business? Um, I've been in real estate business about 13 years um, and been in Spokane about 10. What brought you here? Well, my uh, husband's family brought me here. They've lived here since the 70s and my father-in-law had Alzheimer's. And so we moved out to help take care of him and assist the family in that whole transition process, you know. So you were a realtor, you were in the D.C. area before yep. you came here. We were lived in Fairfax, Virginia. Okay, yes. so which is, you know, a pretty expensive real estate market in general, not necessarily like a bubbly market. What were you surprised about when you came to Spokane about the market? The lack of condominiums and townhomes. Just we, there, there's a sea of those in the yeah. northern Virginia area just as a need for right. the, the masses. There's only so much space and everyone wants to be within a subway ride to D.C. Right. So uh, that was one of the first interesting sides of it, but cost was hugely different. 
you know, the average price point for a house sale in Northern Virginia, at least in the Fairfax, Virginia area, um, like $550,000. And wow. that includes condos and townhomes. Um, and then here, when we arrived here, the average sale price was around two hundred. Right. So it was substantially different. Yeah. So we sold our house there and moved here and bought this 1900s fixer upper. I know you can relate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so we have uh, been enjoying the historic home aspect of it for sure. And a lot has changed since the, in the 10 years since you've moved here. So maybe we could hugely. Yeah. Maybe that's where we could start today. Like just with the market as it stands today. And with the, the sort of buyers you're seeing in that market and, and sellers too, but I'm really sort of really want to focus on the buyers. Like what's this last couple of years been like? Are your clients local? Are the buyers you're seeing local? Are they moving here from elsewhere? Has that mix changed as the prices have gone up pretty precipitously in the last two years? It has somewhat. I mean, I still have a lot of buyers locally. They're local people have been here and nothing has changed in that regard. Yeah. But the big change happened really for, for that shift in the numbers of buyers changed last year with the flexibility where they could live anywhere. Okay. Um, and so specifically people saying, well, I'm now I can work remotely. I don't have to live in Los Angeles or I don't have to live in Seattle or Portland or wherever. So they, they want a home. They want, they want a historic home. They want an older style home. And so they, uh, chose Spokane to be where they moved to because they heard it was cheap to live here. <laughs> and it was at one point. And so these people are mostly looking for like traditional single family homes, but maybe on the older side, like in the historic core. Yeah, exactly. We have a unique situation since the big fire in Spokane, 1898. The entire city was basically rebuilt, you know, between 1899 and uh, 1920s, 1930s. Right. So we have a huge stock of, you know, craftsman homes, historic style, historic homes and people that really appeals to people. Most Cities, those have long been bulldozed, and so right. that that is a huge appeal to people. Tree-lined streets, historic character homes, they don't all look the same, so that's really appealing to them. What are the big sort of market dynamics and stressors you're hearing when you when you talk to buyers, whether it's the, the locals or the, or the recent transplants, housing costs being a big stressor, but also is it inventory a problem? What, what else is going on? Well, inventory is, is the is the issue. Inventory is what drives the prices and the price escalation. So that is a huge stressor. Um, the other thing is the purchase has become very competitive in that, you know, most customers, most buyers have a mortgage. Right. And in the market right now, being driven more by corporate purchases and people who are moving here with a big nest egg from somewhere where they cashed out of a big, a high price city, they're coming here and they're purchasing a home with cash. It's impossible when you are representing, and I try to focus on new buyers, young buyers, um, first time buyers. Yeah. Not always young. Um, <laughs> it takes a while to save that money. Yeah. But, um, I focus on them. And so when you're competing against cash offers, there's 10 offers on the table and your buyer has a conventional mortgage or an FHA mortgage, heaven forbid, right. you, you're out of luck when you've got a cash buyer who's going to close in two weeks. And just to sort of drill in on that, because people always talk about like cash being king and how much you know more appealing those offers are. Part of the reason that is, and I, I would imagine, especially with an older home, is that when you're financing a mortgage because you don't have cash to just pay for a home, the bank has stipulations around what, you know, if if there's a bidding war that drives the price up $50,000, but it only appraises at 500, but you offered 550, the buyer either has to come up with that delta 
or the bank just won't finance anything more than 500. That's correct. And, you know, there are also sort of, I've been seeing sort of anecdotally as part of the bidding process, people are like waiving things like inspections, which a bank would not go for, but a cash, if somebody has enough cash, they can make the decision to just be like, I don't care how bad the sewer is. I don't care if the roof's, you know, leaking. Well, that's exactly the case. So in a situation where you have a mortgage, you have a couple of different pain points that you don't have with cash. One is, is that you are under the scrutiny of whoever's going to underwrite your mortgage. Right. So um, they are going to want to do an appraisal. An appraisal is not required if you're paying by cash. You just pay cash, you accept it, you move on, the seller doesn't have to worry about it. The other side of that is from an inspection standpoint, and you raise that issue. If you have a house that's an older house, especially, there's every house has some issues, even brand new ones. Um, and so you have an inspection contingency that says you have to do these things before you'll close on the purchase. Well, if someone is waiving that and they're paying cash, a seller is stupid not to take that. Right. Because they don't have to worry about, I have to fix this list of six items. Right. Um, and they don't have to worry about it falling through at the last minute because their financing fell through at the last minute, which happens a lot. And financing takes time, so it also means that the transaction can happen quicker if it's cash, usually. Yeah, cash can legitimately close within a week um, in some cases, um, whereas a mortgage takes 30 to 45 days at the earliest. So this isn't like a real estate training course. There won't be a test at the end of this, but I wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to get into that just to basically understand like the top line takeaway for people is that the dynamics of the market and the people that are coming to this market are making it really, really hard for just normal people, the vast majority of people who have to pay with a mortgage, and especially you were talking about young homeowners or people who have saved their whole lives to be able to buy their first home. That's the traditional homeowner, home, first time home buyer. Those people are probably having the hardest time in this market. They absolutely are. And in many cases, they have given up looking for homes because they can't find one or they have made offers on 12 homes and haven't been successful. Wow. And so you only get you can only bang your head against a brick wall so often before you go, forget it. It's not happening. And I see comments all the time, people saying, I've just given up buying a house. And and that's unfortunate. And that hurts. That hurts my heart when I hear that, because that's who I want to have a house. I don't want you know, some flipper or some corporate buyer to buy a house that's going to turn it into an Airbnb. I want people that are going to live in that house and love it and love their neighborhood. And that that's what makes our city a city is viable neighborhoods with people who live there and know each other and relate with each other and yeah. build from there. And that's one of the, the reasons I wanted to talk to you specifically, like this is your job. You're a realtor. So you have a vested interest in selling people properties. But when we were talking about this, like you have a real passion about Part of our societal cohesion revolves around, especially at this time in American history, around people's ability to build wealth by accessing affordable homes to buy. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like what, what is it? It's not just about buying a house that you get to live in. Like what does it do for the rest of people's lives when they can afford to buy a home? It, it builds generational wealth. I mean, you it's something you can pass on to your children, your grandchildren, et cetera, but you have to start somewhere. I mean, only so many people can, you know, spend their days being day traders, build, buying stock and selling stock. Right. For most people and most families, their biggest investment is their home that they build equity in. They pay their home off. They sell their home or whatever. But that is what builds their it's their step still to a greater future. Um, and so when I see people who have rented for 30, 40 years and now they need to retire, well, they don't have 
that 30 or 40 years built up in their equity of their home to be able to take the next step in their lives. And so they're in a trapped space. And ultimately, I think that's part of what drives some of the homelessness issues. They don't have that protection of a roof over their head that they own. Right. That's either whether you're like cashing out on a home you bought 30 years ago to downsize into something more affordable and build a little nest egg for yourself, or just having a having a house that's paid off, meaning your costs, that your cost of living is so much lower, you might be able to survive on something like Social Security. Because part of the dynamic here is that 50 years ago or 60 years ago, within the 50s, a lot of people had pensions that they would live on in retirement. Now we have 401k. There's just, there's, there's fewer and fewer ways for normal people to accumulate wealth. And so more and more, the, the, the focus is on something like real estate. Well, absolutely. Well, even, even for those that didn't have the, the pensions and so forth, my parents certainly didn't have a pension. My father owned his own company and it was a small little home remodeling roofing company. And my mother, she took care of kids. So, um, it was a different dynamic then, but their goal was we're going to buy a house. We're going to pay that house off so that when we're older and we can't work as hard, that we can afford to have a place to live, that we have a protection from the world outside. Right. Um, and so it doesn't have to be a giant grand house. It was just a house. It was a place that was their own. That is being robbed and taken away from people. And I think that that security, that feeling of security that they had may never come back if we don't do something. So I want to talk about possible solutions to this stuff in a second, but I want to talk about the politics of real estate as a way of setting up the difficulties and the dynamics of of actually solving these problems. Right. So as a realtor, you belong to the local chapter of the Association of Realtors, and you kind of have to, right? Like that's the way you can access the local MLS, which is the listing service that actually shows people the homes that are available. Like if you go on to Zillow or you go on to, when we were looking in the pre-Zillow world, we bought our house in 2009, we went to like southhillhomes.com. That list of homes that you look at is fueled by the MLS system. There's a bunch of back-end functionality that realtors get to access just to know what homes are on the market. And you don't get access to that unless you're a member of the association. Is that correct? That's correct. So so we're, we're each, all realtors, real estate brokers in the state of Washington, anyone who sells real estate is a real estate broker. So a real estate broker is licensed by the state of Washington to sell real estate throughout the state of Washington. Um, then depending where you live, you join an association. In our case, it's Spokane Association, or it could be Seattle King County right. Association, etc. Then you purchase access to the MLS if you're a licensed real estate professional. Gotcha. In Spokane, the MLS is owned by the association, which is not the case everywhere. Gotcha. Um, the MLS is usually a separate entity, but in our case, it's it's one and the same. In that case, a private association owns sort of access to the MLS in a way that doesn't. You said that Seattle's MLS does not work that way. Is that correct? No, not exactly. So um, Northwest MLS serves much of the state of Washington and certainly all of Western Washington, um, but. Um, there are many, many associations that are separate. That it, you don't have to be a member of those associations necessarily to be, have access to NWMLS. So that sets up a d- dynamic, regardless of the politics, where in, in the Spokane area, you kind of have to be the member of this association. So can we then talk about the MLS isn't the only thing the Realtors Association does. Can, and you're actually pretty active in the, the local Realtors Association. So can you explain like what some of those other things are that the association does? So associations throughout the country, being a realtor in other states as well previously, um, I'm aware that real estate associations all have a slightly different focus. But the thing they all do 
they're there to develop agents to make sure that brokers, real estate brokers, and realtors, which is their brand name for right. a real estate professional, yeah. are all following the code of ethics. They are all adequately trained. They know what they're doing. They are, are focused on integrity, um, ethics, and education. They also track sales figures so that they know uh, the trends. They can recognize trends and see trends. Um, and they also do a lot of education programs at the association. And our local association also does some political advocacy. Virtually all associations do political advocacy. Ours tends to be a little more aggressive than some. Okay. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what, is that, what does that look like within the association? Like, is it like lobbying for policy, advocating for candidates, supporting candidates financially? How does it work? Uh, some of both. Ours tends to be a very conservative organization. At Seattle King County Association, it's not quite as conservative as you can imagine, right. uh, based on the members who live there. So ours tends to be a little more conservative, and uh, they advocate for issues, but they also advocate for and support candidates. The purpose of this questioning isn't to like get into like partisan politics here. But it's more to understand what an individual, re what power an individual realtor has to affect the decision of the association. So, when there's a you know a candidate, an initiative on the ballot that might affect the the real estate community, how does the association go about deciding who to support or what to put their weight behind? Is it a democratic process? Is it not? How does it work? It's not democratic at all. Okay, that's <laughs> and and that's sort of how the reason I got tried to get more involved in to the Government Affairs Committee. A few years ago, um, I received a mailer. A particular congressional candidate, Kathy Morris Rogers, had been endorsed by the local association. I'm like, absolutely not. I would never vote for her. No one asked me. And yeah. I was like, how did this happen? So I didn't know at the time. So I reached out to find out who did make that decision and got and tried to get involved in that committee to see if I can, you know, at least be part of that discussion to see how that happened. So what did you find when you got there? Well, I found that the way decisions are made, as is often the case, lots of committees, whether it be in the city of Spokane, Spokane County, or any corporation, there are lots of committees that are more window dressing than actual meat involved. Yeah. You know, they don't make the decision. So the, a, a small committee interviews candidates. The members of the interview committee are part of the Government Affairs Committee, but they interview candidates, they propose endorsements, and then they bring the list of endorsements back to the committee and we vote to say, yes, we support those endorsements. It's like a, a roster of endorsements. It's not gotcha. individually. We don't vote so on the So you vote on the whole roster, not individual endorsements? Correct. Just to sort of paint a picture for people, it sounds like what I'm what I'm hearing, and I, I sit on a number of boards as well. And there's the whole sitting voting member of any given board, regardless if it's a nonprofit, probably for profit, like larger corporations have this thing too. You have then committees that are, have certain tasks to complete. In this case, we're talking about the Government Affairs Committee that is sort of tasked with sort of engaging with the affairs of government, including political elections. But what you're talking about, there's also now there's a subcommittee that's interviewing candidates within this community. So effectively, the decisions are made sort of two degrees of Kevin Bacon away from the rank and file people. But even you as a, a member of the Government Affairs Committee, you don't have direct access to even the interview process or anything like that. That's you, just, you just have to then vote on the entire slate of endorsements, which might include some people you support, might include people you don't support. It's just sort of an up and down vote. That's correct. That's correct. Now, um, we certainly could say, you know, an individual could say, I, I want us to break out and vote on this person separately. I don't want to include them in the full list. But I've certainly not heard that occur. 
Um, some people have raised particular issues, but it was ultimately an up or down vote. So how does that make you feel just as a rank and file member, maybe, but then also as somebody who's taken the time to give extra time and energy to a committee? You're not getting paid for this committee. You're doing it sort of a, a duty within the, the community of realtors. So like, how, how does that process make you feel? Well, most recently, so without getting into all of the deliberations, of course, our committee does, but most recently when the endorsements came out for City of Spokane City Council, as an example. Sure. Um, so um, they said um, our interview committee has met, we have interviewed them, and we endorse these candidates. We recommend endorsing these three candidates. Um, and we also recommend that we give a donation of X to each of them. Within the, because that's a direct donation, it would have specific limits based on the city of Spokane, state of Washington rules, et cetera. The motion was made, people voted, and and then we went on. Hmm. Um, but it was interesting was shortly after we had voted in or voted the endorsements in, we found out that there were quite large independent expenditures drafted. An independent expenditure is, if you're people are not aware. It is one that is done on behalf of a candidate, but not in coordination with a candidate. So it has different requirements from a disclosure responsibility and or doesn't meet the same rules and regulations. So, for example, in the city of Spokane, there is a limit of $500 that you can do for each candidate for both the primary and then the general election. An independent expenditure in this case was, you know, a total of $100,000. Um, but it was to do tasks for those candidates, but not in coordination with them. So this is the Citizens United stuff that we hear a lot about nationally. What it is, is rather than giving money to a candidate, which has pretty strict rules around it, laws, uh, federal laws, state laws, local laws, Citizens United, one of the things that it says is like, you can, you can't limit free speech. Money is speech. So you can give to political action committees or specially created groups, basically infinite money. As long as they don't coordinate with the campaign, it's not a violation of campaign finance law. So... Does the Realtors Association have its own PAC? Does it give to a PAC? Where were those uh, independent expenditures funneled or to be funneled? So the independent expenditures, as I have since found out, don't actually come necessarily from the state of Washington Realtors or even Spokane Realtors. And they, in many cases, come from the National Association of Realtors. And so a sort of a pool of funds that once your government affairs committee has endorsed a candidate, then the local association can make a request to the state and to the national for funding for our particular the, for these candidates. Okay. And then so um, it starts at the government affairs committee, but the funding comes from outside. It can be from all over. Who does the spend? Is it is there a political action committee that the realtors have formed themselves, or do they go in in concert with somebody else, or is it a different? Realtors have their own political action committee called RPAC, Realtors Political Action Committee. Okay. So RPAC, there is a, a state of Washington RPAC, and there is a national RPAC. And and members, incidentally, members can are encouraged to donate, but are not required to donate to RPAC. However, in the state of Washington a few years ago made a decision that all realtors would be automatically billed $35 that goes to RPAC. And if you don't want the money to go to RPAC, you have to send an email to this email address and we'll shift that $35 to our image campaign or something. Gotcha. But it comes automatically. So if you were to look at the number of realtors who give to RPAC, it's huge. It's a large number. But it's because virtually everyone is automatically enrolled and you have to opt out of it and ask the money to be redirected. So it's a cumbersome process. Wow. And that was a statewide decision? That was a state of Washington decision. Okay. Washington Realtors decision, yes. So there might be people who are 
have contributed to these campaigns without even realizing it, maybe because they didn't look at the fine print of their bills. Or whatever. Absolutely. Okay. And it, it, they made it more cumbersome to get out of giving the money. So it's it's been a bone of contention of minds for a while, and I certainly have raised it at both the state and national level. So 2019 was in the city of Spokane. I actually couldn't find a graph that I had referenced a couple of years ago, but it was like the mayor's race, the city council race, like the local races in 2019 were, I think, at least double in terms of contributions any previous record, which I think the previous record was maybe 2015 or something. It was somewhere in the, it was, it was millions of dollars, much, much more than we've ever seen in flow into campaign funds locally. It wasn't all realtors, but it was a lot of building trades, a lot, or a, a lot of, um, and actually the building trades were kind of at war. It was like kind of like the, the builders association, like the capitalists versus the union trade workers. Yes. It was like a full scale war. It in, was a in, war. In a, in a way that like, I, I won't pretend that I've like been following local politics, you know, feverishly my entire life, but I was shocked by the amount of money that was injected in. I think most people were shocked. I mean, I was shocked and most realtors were shocked that that amount of money was being spent. Well, and so that that was a, a couple stories came up where specific scrutiny was applied to the realtors contributions. And I was hearing from my friends who are realtors off the record in closed door sessions and DMs. I was hearing a lot of frustration about where these the fact that these expenditures were being made at all in some cases and, and then especially like who the expenditures were going to. Gina understood what I was getting at, but this was not the clearest question. So let me clarify. People behind the scenes were saying they were really upset about this expenditure or that. But then when stories were written about this incredible, unprecedented expenditure, folks who were upset weren't really going on the record with the same level of consternation as I was hearing behind the scenes. And so I was just asking a question about that. I guess the question for me is, are people afraid to speak up or was it a political consideration not wanting to alienate potential clients or probably all of the above? Like, what, what do you think that dynamic was? Like where there's like all this consternation behind the scenes, but not a lot of like on the record about it. It's a little bit of both. But from, I mean, we take an oath that we will assist clients regardless of any issue. It doesn't matter whatever issue we whatever is your situation we will take care of you just as fairly as anyone else so that goes down for politically you could you know be the biggest conservative whatever um or or whatever liberal yeah, yeah. and we're going to treat you and work just as hard for you as anyone else so there is a certain amount of we as as taken oath of ethics to do that so you don't want to speak out to be seen as someone who um, may appear to alienate people. But the bigger issue, I think, is that when you sign up to be a member of the local association, which we've discussed, it's you're required to, right. it's sort of like joining the mafia, if you will. You know, <laughs> you know, they don't have hitmen, thankfully. I would have been off a long time ago, but <laughs> but they 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 do have the power to um, fine individual members, and so you don't want to cross that line by by speaking out against them in, in for fear of perhaps getting pulled into a hearing and sat down in front of a bunch of your peers and saying we're going to fine you ten thousand dollars. Right, and it creates a power imbalance among the rank and file that I just really wanted to tease out and underscore and get your thoughts on, and because it struck me at the time, it's like for people that are politically aligned with the association. They don't have to go out on a limb, go public and say, hey, I actually don't want to support, for example, Kathy McMorris Rogers. But if you don't agree with the 
association, you're kind of in a double bind where if you speak up, you're in danger of running afoul of them or, you know, and possibly if it's, you know, done in a way that they think is untoward, they might try to launch an investigation or something. But it also the speech in the form of the political donation, it allows the people that are politically aligned with them to keep quiet and just go along. And they don't have to, any of the risks that somebody that ne- then needs to speak up about, no, I actually believe that this other person's a better candidate or this policy isn't going to be good the way that the realtors say it's good. So it, it creates multiple problems for somebody like you. <laughs> like me. <laughs> and I learned a long time ago, you know, I'm not going to just shut up because someone wants me to. That'll be the, that actually would probably encourage me to open my mouth even more if you tell me I have to shut up. I get that sense. from <laughs> just the, I first became aware of Gene because he's an incredibly entertaining follow on Facebook. And yeah, you speak your mind. And, and so that's what, when we started talking about this stuff, it was, I was glad to finally find someone who would just sort of talk about this in general. And like, and you're being pretty open. Like, this is just your opinion. We're talking about political opinions here. So right, like, right. and we're not even, I'm not even trying to have the discussion about who's right or who's wrong. Like right. whether Catherine Morris Rogers should have been endorsed or not. It's really more about this structural issue that we have where there's a tremendous amount of money flowing to an organization. And a lot of that money comes from members. Members don't have a choice to give that money away. Then there are these separate political expenditures that you have to opt out of, which is a whole other level of coercion. There's really basically only a very few select number of people actually get to choose where that money gets spent. Right, exactly. And so you've got a a very small number of people making the decisions without ever polling the membership to say, what do you want us to do? Um, and so it, it, it really does create a dynamic where it is sort of mafia-like. <laughs> <laughs> and I joke when I say that term, but I mean, it, it, feel, it just doesn't feel like the way it should be done in supposedly the greatest, you know, nation on earth. Right. <laughs> and just to be clear, for per- you're not accusing them of being an actual mafia no, on the record. Not. That's no, not, no. No, but no, it's, no. There's a power dynamic involved. Right. Where, whereas someone, a small number of people are making the decisions for a large number of people without ever seeking their input and tied to their livelihood and to their careers and how they feed their families. So it, it's it's a very odd dynamic and it is, it's definitely a power trip. So just out of curiosity, and you might not know this, this is a question, I actually tried to look this up on my own while I was preparing for this and I couldn't really find anything. Are there associations that do political contributions more democratically where they pull the membership at all? Or is this pretty standard or, or do you not know? Well, of the associations I've been a member of, it, it, it is pretty standard. But what is not standard is the, the skew toward a particular side of the aisle. And, you know, that's different. And the other thing is, is that, so, I mean, I was in Northern Virginia. And so Northern Virginia Association of Realtors, it's a pretty diverse community. And um, they endorsed both sides of the aisle and they and they didn't get it. They didn't specifically did not get involved in city or county politics. Oh, interesting. Whereas here in Spokane, there has been and this is a recent effort to really, you know, make a difference and push their views and their ideas to city council, the county uh, commissioner. You'll see more of that, I suspect, next year. Okay. And also even encouraging members to join the plan commission and so forth. So there's a a big effort. It wasn't just some sort of random dynamic that in 2019 a whole bunch of money got spent. It was a a calculated move, at least on the the part of the realtors, to say, we're going to invest our political action dollars in our local market. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, um, and, and I don't know, I certainly have not been involved in any of those meetings where those st- strategies were launched, but it certainly appears to have shifted where they are spending big money. 
All right, so let's get on to the solutions. That was that was super helpful. Just to know how this stuff runs in the background is hopefully going to be pretty empowering to people or just so they understand the way these decisions get made and how this money flows. Because I think it's, I was fascinated by this. I read a lot about you know, like every piece of coverage that came out in the, in the news about it. And nobody ever really got to that behind the scenes of like, how did this decision get made? And, and again, the realtors were only one of a number of groups giving money on both sides, but at least a window into how any of those decisions were made. I didn't well, see. And even for us as realtors, I, I've been a realtor for like for 13 years and I didn't know how that worked until the most recent round of independent expenditures came out. As a result of questions that I raised, we had a very <laughs> specific conversation, lengthy conversation in a government affairs committee to tell the members, here's how the decisions were made and here's why the decisions were made. Part of the reason, and, and I will defend them a little bit, well, not really, um, <laughs> but the reason that they said that, that we couldn't be involved in the decision, it had to be a very small group that decided on independent expenditures, is the risk that one of our members would reach out to a candidate and go, hey, we just voted to give you money. I'm so excited. Because if you did that, they would have to pull back that money because you can't coordinate with. That would that would count as coordination that would run afoul of campaign finance. Yes. Okay. Yes. And the reasoning was they keep it to a very small group. And in Spokane, it's, I think, four people that make that decision in the wow. Spokane Association of Realtors. Um, the local president is elected each year, and then other people that he appoints to make that decision, and then the local, you know, bo some board members. But it's a very small group in any case. And so we discussed at length about how that happened and why it happened and why they wouldn't tell us and why we didn't discuss it. Um, and the other thing was, it's like, I raised them, it's like, well, couldn't you let us know as soon as it was made, as soon as you submitted your form to the PDC, couldn't you let us know? you know, that this was made and they didn't even do that. So we hear about it through candidates, basically. And so even the, the attempt to make the process more fair, this campaign finance law is sort of used as a, an excuse to not inform the people about what their money is actually being spent on. Exactly. And it might be a valid reason to not do it, but it still functions to disempower people. It does. Yeah. So uh, what, one last thing on that, and then we'll get to the solutions. Sure. If you were president, all right, so you magically get elected president to the, the realtors and you get to decide the committee and theoretically, assuming there's not some bylaw thing about how this stuff gets done, how would you in a perfect world as a rank and file realtor, how would you want this decision to be made in Spokane? Like, would you want it to be more democratic or just a, a more open conversation? I believe in transparency and having an open conversation about anything. But to get to the very baseline of that, I don't think that donations of that sort work to anyone's behalf. I wouldn't vote to support expenditures of that level, even if it was to a candidate I personally support. Interesting. Because I think that takes away from the individual rights as a citizen has to vote and decide who leads them. It skews that. And I don't I personally don't believe in making donations at that level. Even if they were support the candidate I supported, I don't believe we should be doing that as an industry. So you're one of these dangerous radicals who believes in democracy. I do. I do. I still do. <laughs> okay, so with that all as background Let's talk, let's go back to the crisis, sure. kind of where we're at. Um, Cause you have a, you also are pretty active in your neighborhood committee and you had a really interesting plan a couple of years ago that I want to get into about how to build more density in a way that's. Before that's, we go there, can, can, can we talk about the crisis? Please. Yeah. Tell me. Crisis. He just did air quotes when he air said quotes, crisis. So yeah, let's talk crisis. about it. Yeah. So what's so, your thoughts on that? Well, politically the local association has done their part to beat the drums of, oh my gosh, we have a unique situation in Spokane and it's all Spokane City Council's fault. Right. 
Okay, that is not accurate, first of all. So I know realtors. I'm a member of a very large national association, and I know realtors all over the country and in Canada, and every market is experiencing the same situations that we're having. This is not a unique, it's a crisis nationwide in lack of housing, but it is not a unique Spokane situation. And I fear that some people are using that as a way to divide people and encourage a change at city council. So so there, there is a crisis of housing, but it's a nationwide thing, not a Spokane unique issue. And just to be clear, it's at the level of permitting and the level of, you know, who, who decides what gets to be built where and the, the rank and file, that's, that's out of the mayor's office. That's all de- determined by permitting and stuff. And it's true that I think, you know, our crisis might be slightly worse than other places. And maybe it's just because of the size of our city. The si- we haven't built as densely historically. We are also, until pretty recently, we had a pretty stable housing stock issue. We did. Well, one, it was sort of an act of God. I don't think people started... I don't think people would have expected even in 2015 that the amount of people have moved here since say 2018, we're going to move here. Right. So that's something nobody could avoid. Well, it is. I mean, if you look at the, you know, our Spokane, we didn't have the big boom and bust period like most cities. had. No, not at all. No. And so in part of that was because we had a very stable, you know, market, you know, if you look at the number of houses sold each year, you know, we definitely, we hit our peak in house, homes sold in Spokane in, when was it? Oh, in 2005. That was our peak in 2005. We sold 8,300 homes in Spokane, wow. you know, in Spokane County. Um, and then our valley was in 2011. We sold 4,029. So, you know, it, there was a, there's something happened in there, 2008, 2009. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. You know, brought that bottom that out. So right now we are still not back to the peak of 2005 as far as numbers of homes sold in Spokane County. So that doesn't just include... So the city of Spokane, it which is not. what the council actually and the mayor gets to have jurisdiction over, includes the valley where there are basically no rules at all and people can build whatever they want. And are and in inc- Spokane County outside, yes, right. outside the city. Right. So this is a countywide situation. And then it is fair to say that around that same time we started building all these houses to sort of turn the post war, you know, the productivity that drove the economy during World War Two. We turned that engine from making war to making houses. Absolutely. That also did a number of other things with zoning, one of which was we took a bunch of historic neighborhoods that had mixed use stuff and we just zoned everything single family. So I live in a duplex that on a part of Spokane that is zoned that could not be built today because of the way we've zoned things. And I want to have this conversation about zoning, but we just sort of blanket zoned, down zoned everything to like single family because we were trying to build the suburbs, but then also suburbanize into the urban core as, as much as possible. Okay. So is your, so let's talk about your home, for example. So your home is a duplex presently. It was built as a duplex it was in, built in 1923. Right. So built as a duplex. Yes. And we have a lot of those homes in Spokane. We do. And a lot of those are still functioning duplexes. Yes. Um, in my neighborhood, as an example, Emerson Garfield neighborhood, you know, within three blocks of my home, I know of at least a dozen functioning duplexes that if you looked at the city records, it would indicate they were single family residential homes. You know, some that we've talked about was that there are several people that are advocating for more duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes. In my opinion, they're already there. You know, we need to, first of all, get planning to recognize they are there, acknowledge they are there. Avista knows they're there. They have multiple meters. Right. Um, but the city calls them a single family home. Hmm. And so we need to, first of all, 
inventory what's out there to make sure we know how many there really are. Because until we know how many houses and how many dwellings we have in the city, how can you really quantify how many more we need to build? I mean, we know we need to build more. Absolutely. But before we give a blank check to developers, in my opinion, and I know we'll talk about this, but before we give a blank check to developers and just open up every single family home neighborhood to any development they want up to fourplexes, you know, I think we need to know how many are there, identify those, because by opening it up without any sort of constraints, I fear the destruction of neighborhoods and the loss of um, a massive change in who lives in those neighborhoods. People who've lived there for 30 years may not be able to live there anymore. They've been renting this house for 15, 20 years. Well, now all of a sudden they're displaced. We hear this in national conversations. You hear this on the nightly news, like around how do we build not new places, but how do we build in our existing urban core? There's this concept of nimbyism, not in my backyard, which is sort of like we need to preserve forever the things that were built the way they were. I love my neighborhood. It has character. I never want, I certainly don't want an apartment building down the block because that's going to change the essential neighborhood character of the neighborhood. It's pretty clear that that mindset's not tenable unless we want to just, you know, basically just turn America into one big suburban uh, sprawl. Then there are the Yimbies. And there are extreme forms of yimbyism that are yes in my backyard, where it's like any form of development is good no matter what. If I were just going to sort of go off of my own political valence and how I feel about people just need homes with all the nuance stripped away, I think I would naturally be more of a yimby. I'd be a guy that's like, yeah, we actually need, I live in, you know, I live on 14th Avenue in, in Spokane. There are two blocks north of me. There are $2 million homes. And one block south of me, there are a bunch of mid-century duplexes it's, oh, right. it's a really Absolutely. weird neighborhood. It's a bunch of renters and some of the wealthiest people in Spokane. It's really strange. The neighborhood cohesion is just fine. And, you yeah. know, and it's a cool place to live. I like it. And, it's, and that means there's also a mix of housing sizes. So you get a lot of different people. You get professors who are renters. You know, my neighbor's a professor at Eastern who rents. We've got a, a guy, my buddy, works at Expedia remotely. And his, they're all artists. And they live in, a, in, a, in the farmhouse that was the original sort of, I think, the plot of land before it got turned into a neighborhood. You know, that's from the you know, late 1800s or early 1900s. Sure. It's really, it's a, it's, a, it's a diverse in that way neighborhood. Sure. You know, not particularly racially diverse, but that's, you know, a problem for a different day in Spokane. Well, that's Spokane. Right. <laughs> so, so where do you fall on that? I think you're, you're somewhere in the middle. So, so talk about your, your concerns, because this actually came up pretty recently when, we, when the fourplex vote happened. And so I wanted to talk about that. But just let's talk in general about, like, what's your perspective on these things? Well, for me, my fear is, and I've seen it happen before, is if you give the developer full reins to do what they want to do, they're going, they would build, most developers realistically would bulldoze their mother if it made them a buck. Realistically, there's not a great deal of ethics within that body of people. There are certainly great exceptions to that, but I, I am not a big fan of giving them a blank check. Because in my neighborhood, I know that Emerson Garfield, for example, would be one of those places that would absolutely be ripe for the picking for developers. Yeah. It is an area predominantly many renters, um, smaller homes, older homes, not lavish grand homes by any means, in close proximity to transit and downtown. Absolutely. So our neighborhood is going to be one of the ones that gets decimated by an overeager developer. It's also so in Emerson Garfield was created as a census designated place by the feds because it was a low income neighborhood. Like the reason 
There's like Corbin Park. Emerson Garfield was literally, I think it was created in the 70s. That neighborhood designation was basically a carve out that the feds did because the number of low income people that lived there. So it's a place where close to transit, Mm -hmm. close to probably the service jobs a lot of folks work in downtown, you can you could live in a home that you could raise your family in you know, until very recently, very affordably. You could. Absolutely. I mean, even, even a couple of years ago, you could buy a house there. You could buy a house, you know, within blocks of my home for you know $150,000. I mean, realistically, <laughs> yeah, right. which is absurd. When I look at now that house just sold that same house that sold a year and a half ago for 150,000 is now 300,000, Right. you know, but it is. And that still is looking like a bargain right now, actually. 300, well, I would, I would be licking my lips over a $300,000 house in Spokane right now. Well, I, I pulled for today just as a snapshot, just as a comparison purposes. So today in the city of Spokane and in county, I looked in the city of Spokane, there's a total of in the city of 371 homes for sale and 16 condominiums. 16 wow. condominiums. We have none. If you look at 100, under $150,000, there's one. It's a condominium. Under wow. 250, it's 44. Under 350, it is 132. And over 450 of that number, it's 218. Wow. That is in the city of Spokane. That, that's crazy. In the county, there are a total of 690 homes for sale, of which 27 are condos. That's not very many homes at all for sale. Um, and there are a lot of things that pour into that and the reason for that. But, yeah, you're right. Under, the dollar amounts just are, have increased. I mean, this last year, I think we are up to now – I mean, it was the peak in July at like three ninety five median price, and I think we're down to three eighty nine now. So it went down slightly. So your concern when you're talking with Yimbies um, is that, like, the obviously a place like Emerson Garfield is going to be look like you know to quote Maverick from Top Gun. This is what I call a target rich environment. A target rich environment for developers. Yes. To be like, wow, we know there are a lot of people moving from places like Seattle where they expect a little transit, where maybe for lifestyle reasons, unlike Spokane, where a lot of people think that one one measure of affluence is having a car you get to drive wherever. A lot of people that live in that come from cities are like, actually, what I want is convenience of being able to jump on the bus and go downtown party and then, you know, come home with an Uber or something like that. The dynamics of potential buyers is shifting in terms of what they want out of their home. You're worried that if we go full Yimby, that Emerson Garfield is going to be the first place to become basically gentrified in Spokane. Yes. And gentrification, we have grown to understand, is not a good thing for the people who live here. Um, gentrification is great for developers. It is great for realtors, but it's terrible for the residents of the city, um, especially the ones who have been there for a long time. And that would be on a scale that is, you know, unseen in most cities, certainly in my neighborhood, which I am quite fond of. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But a few years ago, we're talking about before this crisis happened, back when when, um, Condon was still mayor and Stuckert was still city council president, you were working with the Neighborhood Association on this problem because you guys saw it coming. You wanted density in the neighborhood. You just wanted to do it in a way that was... That wasn't just complete, like, laissez-faire. Well, we realized that, you know, balance, everything is a balance. And I think that in order to maintain a balance, you have to be willing to give. And you have to, have to be willing to give. And so to go, do it in an in a organized fashion. So uh, think back a little bit. So the Emerson Garfield Neighborhood Council has been very active. We have been very, very fortunate that we've had a long line of chairs um, of that committee that have worked tirelessly over the years to do great things for our community. My father-in-law was one of the first chairs of the Emerson Garfield Neighborhood Council back in the 80s. And the Monroe Project that we worked so long, that was a plan that is in a book from 1988. Wow. 
And that just got done. It just got three done. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Wow. just got done. So, you know, we found our own. We are the only neighborhood that said we're the first neighborhood that said we want we want in our own farmers market. We'll let's make one. We'll create yeah. one. So we created the Emerson Garfield Farmers Market. There are lots of great neighborhoods, but we're very engaged and we want to be productive for our community and for our neighbors. Let me jump in here one more time just because I want to explain. I, I don't know if I've set this up well enough. Maybe I have, but it never hurts to go back over it. So in the spectrum of infill advocates and skeptics, there's sort of the not in my backyard people on the farthest end who might theoretically be interested in development somewhere, but not in their backyard, never in their neighborhood, whatever. We've seen this play out recently with a development that Jim Frank, who developed Kendall Yards, wanted to do up around, I think, 29th and Southeast on the South Hill. It was undeveloped land, would have been a really cool mixed-use thing. It might, it might still be going on, but there has been so much pushback that that project has not kicked off at all. Those are the NIMBYs. The YIMBYs are people who see the need for development and advocate to varying degrees that we need to build housing wherever we can build it. And if that means that historically single family neighborhoods need to be upzoned, then we just need to do that. And some of the YIMBY militants is easy to understand because, like I said before, a lot of zoning in Spokane that was was zoned for sort of like a neighborhood theoretical mixed use that could include duplexes, could include townhouses, could include stuff like that, got downzoned at the mid-century uh, in, in Spokane specifically, but all over the country. And it also stripped those neighborhoods of commercial zones. So in the last 10 years, we've started to allow things like Doyle's Ice Cream Shop could come back. You know, it's a you know a neighborhood ice cream shop that had been around for close to a, you know, like 60, 70, 80 years, I don't even know. In West Central, it had to be grandfathered in to its historic location to continue selling ice cream in the neighborhood because the entire neighborhood had been blanket rezoned single family only. I'm getting a lot of mouth noise today, guys. Sorry. I'm trying to hydrate as much as I can. My mouth's really dry. Gross. So what we're hearing a lot right now and what actually went through the city council recently and that we're going to talk about more later, so we're just prefacing this, was a blanket upzoning or a blanket redefinition of single family zoning. I don't know exactly how this works. I probably need to get somebody on, but to allow for, at least in theory, up to fourplexes on traditionally plotted single family land. Friend of the pod, Anthony Gill, who is uh, runs the Spokane Rising account. If you're anywhere in like news and comment circles in Spokane, especially on Facebook or Twitter, you've probably seen the Spokane Rising account. Anthony is a big advocate of this, of abolishing single family exclusionary zoning, meaning he's not, you know, not abolishing single family homes, but abolishing zoning that only allows sort of single family, you know, backyard, big lot, suburban style development anywhere in the city of Spokane, but especially in the urban core. There are various levels of militancy in Yimbyism. I don't think we have the hardest core militancy, but I do want to talk about at least the theoretical purest form of Yimbyism, that uncut fish scale. Yimbyism is an, it is an inherently market-based solution. And therefore, the harder core you get in the build anywhere, yes, in any backyard, you're getting more and more toward complete deregulation, which then opens up the possibility of somewhat unlimited development, given the backbone and the risk tolerance of whatever developers you have in town. But it fundamentally puts and seeks to remove barriers to 
development. It fundamentally puts development in the driver's seat and then seeks to remove all barriers to ensure the rapidest development, the most rapid, rapidest development possible. And speed is good, speed is necessary, but if you don't plan thoughtfully along the way, people are going to get left behind and guess who those people are going to be. So that's theoretical yimbyism taken to its most extreme form just to understand the dynamics. I'm certain the yimbies in Spokane are not arguing that far to the build baby build side of just letting the free market have reign over our housing stock and the way that neighborhoods are composed as a result. But you can see why Gene is concerned, right? This is a neighborhood that is traditionally undervalued, meaning it's cheap, it's easy to buy houses here until pretty recently, pretty poor folks could buy homes and could certainly afford rent in Emerson Garfield. That's changing, but it's still one of the cheaper neighborhoods in Spokane. We know from the episode we did with Ryan Pilgrim that the way capitalism works in a redevelopment context, which is in you know most American contexts, everything in America has been developed once or most things have. One of the reasons you see people wanting to get rid of public lands is so that they can develop unspoiled lands for the first time. That's probably not going to happen most places. So what capital is left with is redeveloping undervalued properties, right? So there's a twofold factor why in a pure Yimby state, Emerson Garfield is going to redevelop and gentrify before 29th and Southeast Boulevard redevelops and gentrifies. First is the political power of the neighborhood, the political power of the neighbors, the wealth of the neighbors in those neighborhoods. The South Hill is a wealthy place. It is a historic seat of power. It is not a historically redlined neighborhood. It's part of the neighborhood that had racially exclusionary covenants. It's the opposite of a redlined neighborhood. It is a it is a neighborhood that took pains, or not the whole thing. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. That is where the neighborhoods that had racially exclusionary covenants were at the Comstock area, that's the area we're talking about that Jim Frank wanted to redevelop. And that's where he felt so much pushback that the process has been stalled. Emerson Garfield does not have that kind of clout. Also, the average home in Emerson Garfield is still probably going for around $250,000. Certainly, the median home price is under 300000 whereas the median home price on that section of the South Hill might be twice that much. So if you've got two lots that are the exact same size, that have the exact same zoning, and you want to make a fourplex for high-end renters or a, a fourplex condo for high-end buyers, and maybe you assume they're going to be urban buyers because they're moving from Seattle or San Francisco or Dallas or Denver, and there's this really undervalued, cute, historic neighborhood just east of Monroe, just east of these really awesome transit lines, which people moving from urban places might actually really like, and it's like half the price of this other lot on the South Hill, you're obviously going to try to buy that lot and redevelop that lot into something bigger, which is not necessarily a bad thing, obviously, but that's how gentrification begins. And so as we move on, the, rest, the whole rest of this episode is going to be about Gene talking about how he as an individual person, as a realtor, as a member of a neighborhood association, thinks about balancing the clear need for more housing and a need that his neighborhood identified before people in the South Hill did, to be clear. They saw the problem coming in a way that the other folks didn't because they're closer to the problem. They are not insulated from the problem. 
They also don't have the political clout to just get their way and continue living in their bubble. I also don't want to paint people who live on the South Hill as like evil in any way. That's not the point. It's more about you bought in your neighborhood, you like your neighborhood, you want to preserve your neighborhood. It makes sense that people want will take any step they can if they're if they fear density for some reason to stop it. That's not evil. I would say it's short-sighted. I would also say it's a little selfish. Those are my that's my opinion on this matter, but it's not evil. So what we talk about with the rest of this then is Somewhere between full-on NIMBY and full-on YIMBY, is there a way that we can grow smartly, densely, better than we have to accommodate the people we're getting in this town while still maintaining places like Emerson Garfield where normal people can live, where they can still afford to buy in the neighborhood where they were raised, where their grandma's house was, where their community is, where their family is? Think about the last leg of Bloomsday and all the people in West Central, which is not the same neighborhood as Emerson Garfield, but it's close. It's physically proximate and it's demographically similar. People in their yards, just like enjoying the race, but barbecuing with their neighbors, having fun. That's something you don't see, I'm sorry, on the South Hill or up in the northern suburbs like where my parents live. And to be clear, those are communities created by people who were excluded elsewhere, either economically or racially, and they've made the most of it. They've created something really, really beautiful in these places, and obviously not without problems. Every place has its own unique set of problems. He says as an ambulance drives through the middle of his take, but it's really beautiful. And what Gene's talking about for the rest of this episode is how can we grow and still preserve that? For me, despite being kind of, I think, baseline dispositionally yimby-ish, theoretically, but super skeptical of just laissez-faire anything, that's the fundamental question we have to try to answer. The question that neighborhood, Emerson Garfield, has been working on before anybody else even recognized the problem is the fundamental question we need to answer if we're going to continue being a Spokane that looks like Spokane and that is still affordable for people who have always been Spokanites. And we need to do it now precisely in these moments of crisis and conflict because that is precisely the moment that capital is going to try to re-entrench itself, establish an even stronger foothold and even stronger base of power. Naomi Klein calls this disaster capitalism in the context of like natural disasters and wars and stuff. You use a crisis to further entrench capitalism this is an example of that. Our crisis is housing. There's a huge push to get more housing by any means necessary because, again, who's going to be best positioned to capitalize on a by any means necessary housing strategy except the people who already have the capital, right? Literally the definition of the term capitalize, leveraging what you have to get more. So we really need to be careful that in that process, we don't open up things so much that the people that have very little but have something don't get swept aside for the people that already have more than they would ever need. Wow, that was a huge long digression, but that's what I'm thinking about and that's why this the final piece of this episode emerged the way it did and why I wanted to talk to Gene. He saw the problem coming because he was in a frontline neighborhood that was going to be immediately affected by it. The whole neighborhood saw it. They worked to take action years ago 
And for bureaucratic reasons, it stalled. And you'll hear the neighbor's plan later, but instead of really targeted, really thoughtful zoning to create true density along the corridor of near Monroe, closest to transit, closest to everything, the solutions the city council is talking about, a blanket upzoning to four units for any single family lot, would, would theoretically allow the Emerson Garfield neighborhood to just get peppered with new investment that would potentially take away affordable housing stock from the people that are already living in the neighborhood. So it's a, there's some pretty intense nuance here, but it's really, really important to tease out. So thanks for hanging with me. I'm gonna, I've been talking so long that I'm going to rewind a little bit so we can get back to Gene, but within the context of what he was saying. Here we go. There are lots of great neighborhoods, but we're very engaged and we want to be productive for our community and for our neighbors. So we had worked closely with our neighbor, the neighborhood council and with planning to make sure that the North Monroe project came off. That was something that we pushed for for years and our neighborhood worked closely with them to make it happen. So after that project was finished, we had lots of connections with lots of people in planning and someone from planning reached out to our neighborhood council. They reached out to me specifically as a member of the North Monroe business district to say, Hey, here's what we're seeing. What do you think we can do? And that we were seeing that there's no development. It's still parking lots. You know, there's no development on the books. There's been no development conversations along North Monroe. So, you know, we agreed that, well, part of the problem was the way the center and corridor is set up. And so we, rather than saying rezoning it all to just say, build whatever we said, well, what, what are the, what does a developer want? Well, one of the big things they want is they want to have more return on their investment in a small footprint. So right now, for example, the center and corridor is basically the front half of the um, lots. So, for example, there's a the, give an example of a block. So we've got North Monroe on one side and you have Lincoln on the other side. Right. And then there is a, an alley that divides those blocks. The half facing North Monroe is zone center and corridor. The half facing Lincoln are residential single family or residential two family. So a developer, if they wanted to build on the front half, a five floor building, which center and Carter would allow them to do facing Monroe, they have to step it down to two to three floors on the backside because it abuts residential single family. Oh, wow. So that limits your development opportunity. And so one of the things that they were wanting to do is how do we work together with the neighborhood association and with planning to come up with a solution. And so the solution was, well, let's pick certain blocks and let's say that we'll use Lincoln as that step down space so that you could build to the full five floors from the front, from Monroe to Lincoln. Um, And that way it would give the developer just using those blocks as an example, that's not necessarily where it would happen, but giving that as an example. And so that was what we were working toward. And just to be clear what that means, it's like we, when you drive around downtown, they're not, there's not like there's a million of them, but there are a lot of pre-war apartment buildings that are awesome. They're grand. Mm -hmm. Dozens of people live in them, if not hundreds, they'll take up like an entire city block or there'll be five stories and half of a block. What you're saying is the, the centers and corridors, which is technically like how we're supposed to build density. And there's a lot of people that think that centers and corridors needs to be radically changed. But right now, it's not just that you can only build densely on the half of a block that's zoned centers and corridors. 
but you have to even step it down yes. when it abuts something that's residential single family. So a lot Absolutely. of our, so you can't really even build that densely along our centers and corridors, which is ostensibly where we're supposed to build density. Absolutely. And that that's one, to me, one of the biggest problems with the center and corridor plan is the way it's currently set up presently. And so we were identifying, we were in the process working with um, a planner, and I don't want to mention his name because I don't want to get him in trouble, but we were managing with a planner who was a great guy to work with. And so we were working with planning to identify blocks that would make sense to um, change rather than doing the whole thing. Let's pick these. So we, let's gotcha. let's do some targeted ones. And there are several where there's full empty blocks where yeah. it's just vacant. It's vacant from the front all the way to the back, but the back half isn't zoned right. Right. So let's let's pick some spots. Let's get some development building. And then we can let people see that this is a good thing. This is doing great things for our community because the development that would happen along a center and corridor, it's residential or mixed use. It's a mixed use building. So the first floor can be, you know, restaurants, it can be galleries, it can be shops, but above that's where people live. And so that's building a dynamic neighborhood. And that gets more bang for the buck than pittering around with this multifamily tax exemption that builds a fourplex. You know, let's build some real buildings. If we're going to make a dent in the lack of housing, we've got to think bigger than fourplexes. So why haven't those things gone forward? You, you've been working on this since the Condon administration. Did you just get deprioritized to the point that you can't move it forward anymore? Or what's going on? The administration changed. So we had a new mayor come in and even one of the one of the people who are, are decision makers in the local Spokane Association of Realtors said, we had no idea how big the learning curve was going to be for the new mayor. They said, you know, we would have been better off with a different mayor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But what happened is, so they lost, there's a terrible headcount problem in planning. So they right. can't even do day-to-day stuff, much less any real forward-thinking planning like that sort. So that got pulled on the back burner when this great planner was reassigned to other projects. So it's been sitting there. Now, we do understand that supposedly that's been moved back. They want to do it again. But from where it was to starting from scratch again, it's a painful and slow process. This is stuff it relies on a bunch of variables, including developers who are interested in doing this because we don't do social housing in this country. So it's all private enterprise that does the, these developments. There are a million different variables that go into whether you can do something as, as intense. You know, we're talking about probably 16, 20, $40 million buildings, depending on how big these things might be. Like these are, these are significant projects. And so momentum can literally destroy them. If, if things are aligning and then something goes astray, it just might not even happen. So even with, even with everything aligned right with all of the bright permitting and allowable zoning, there are very few developers that can do that level of a project, at least that are in town presently and that have any commitment to the neighborhood. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big issue. And that's why it's not going to be something that's going to be solved quickly. One of the things that I've pushed for, and many people have pushed for, is that we need to, there needs to be some sort of initiative by the city and or county to actually begin building something. Because that's the only <laughs> way that anything's going to happen for those people who are seeking um, entry-level housing. Because those market rate places that they build we're, we're going to still be looking at $450,000 condominiums if they, if they build a condominium, which they unlikely wouldn't. It would be another rental, but a high-priced rental that yeah. most people can't afford. So why are we seeing when multifamily like, buildings get built, why do they tend to be apartments and not condos? 
Um, it's specific to uh, the Condo Reform Act that happened many years ago. And um, it's been amended several times. What happened was there were some substandard condominiums built in the Seattle area. And an act was passed to protect the owners of those condominiums. And so condominium builders have said, I'm doing more air quotes because I don't think <laughs> it's true, but they're saying that they aren't when building condominiums because their risk is too high from a liability standpoint. If you don't build, you know, we might get sued. Well, yes, you might get sued, but just don't build substandard housing and you won't get sued. But you'd think that'd be logical, but they're still building condominiums in, in Seattle. They're still building condominiums in very high price markets. And certainly they can afford, and they certainly have built some high price projects here. The developer has made a decision to not spend the money to build a condominium that they sell. Rather, they will build as a rental because then they are not required to meet the standards of a condo reform act because they're renting it. So they can't get sued for substandard housing as easy as they can as a condo. But then there's a loophole where after 10 years, then you can turn, you can convert a, or is it 10 years where you can convert into an apartment building into a condo? I believe it's 10 years. I believe it's 10 years. So you could build it as a rental, but then you could convert it to a condo and you could avoid that liability. Interesting. They're building condos left and right in Seattle. There's just a risk aversion factor in Spokane where they've, they've chosen most of the time when um, developments like this get built, it's for rental properties, not for condos that people can buy. That's what's getting built. That's absolutely what's getting built here. And they always refer to back to the Condo Reform Act as the reason. We need to change it. Well, legislature has addressed many issues in the Condo Reform Act, but still hasn't done what the developer wants to do. And if we continually chasing only what the developer wants to do, we're never going to get there because they want everything. Um, I mean, look at downtown. We are a sea of parking lots downtown. Those buildings could right. be 50 stories. Right. There's, they don't have the limits that Center and Carter has, but they're not building there either. So it's it's a bigger issue than just saying, oh, we need to change zoning in neighborhoods. And with and with the Condo Reform Act, so so there was some protections, I, especially with the condo that collapsed in Florida. I right. Those <laughs> it's kind of important that you have, you know, some sort of requirements to build safe housing. But the way that it was the way that it was worded, what I hear you saying is what they were trying to do was protect people's investment. That's why they only did it on condos. They weren't actually trying to protect people, right? It was more about protecting investment if it only applies to condos, which are owned properties and not to apartment buildings, right? It is clearly investment, yes. Yeah, but there was a, there was a vote that happened where Councilman Cathcart put a uh, an amendment onto a vote to say, let's just change all zoning Single-family zoning can be can mean uh, building up to fourplexes. That's correct, and that was recently. Right, and so what struck me as like, ooh, I need to reassess my opinion, or I just I need to educate myself more. Was the two most enthusiastic votes for that were our most conservative council person Michael Cathcart and our most I think progressive and maybe like borderline socialist um, council member uh, Burke. It struck me that when those two were agreeing on something it wasn't necessarily that there was like a uh, blue red alliance like horseshoe theory thing where the most conservative and the most uh, progressive person were coming together on something it struck me that it was probably like each of those people had vastly different expectations about what that law was going to do 
I would imagine Councilman Cathcart is thinking this is going to make it easy for, and he, you know, he used to be a, a building trades association guy, and I think he may still work for one. This is just going to make it easier to develop wherever we want, right? So that's the conservative case for this. Councilmember Burke was probably doing the Yimby thing where it's like, God, people need housing. We need to just open this up where we can build those fourplexes where people need, like we need to build good housing wherever it is. And it shouldn't just be in poor neighborhoods. It should be, we should be opening this up in the South Hill. These are all arguments I'm very, very mm-hmm. amenable to. But your point, the, the point of caution that I, I think is just, there's got to be some sort of control in place to ensure that, because again, because of the way housing markets work, those first fourplexes are not going to happen in my neighborhood. They would definitely happen in yours or in East Central or in Hilliard. Right, right. People who can least afford to make a change in their life is where it's going to happen. And one of the recent bloggers, he said, well, if they'll sell their house, then they'll make money. I was like, well, they don't own their houses in many cases. They're their landlord them. will sell their house. Their after landlord will make money. Um, and or the landlord may be the one who is involved with de- redeveloping that property. Yeah, right. Because like, if yeah, if you're a landlord, you might have access to capital where you could just keep the property and, and turn it into in beginning for uh, rent on four homes instead of rent on one home. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 the multifamily tax exemption encourages that. Um, encourages you to build fourplexes. You know, it gives you um, tax abatement for either eight or twelve years. You know, if you build. Four, four units on, on one space. But then it's encouraging you to do that. But if you're a developer, you really only get to take advantage of the financial reward of that if you rent it. If you sell that, those four units, the person who purchased the property gets 10-year tax, tax abatement. Right, because it's a tax rebate. It only applies to you if you're paying the tax. Right. And I actually have seen, I think in, in South Perry, there was a development that used that tax credit they used that as a selling point. Yep, I, they, saw that, I saw that one. Yeah, they yeah. were using mark as a marketing point. Yeah, and so it was like one of the most. They were townhouses. They were fine. The boat. Eh, you know, I've got. I have a. My dad was worked in the trades, and like so, I have opinions about the quality of houses being built that uh, definitely outstrip my ability to build my own home. I couldn't do this work, but I can. I can identify shoddy work. <laughs> Uh, it was fine. It was a, it was a totally serviceably built thing at the time. This was pre the massive escalation. It felt a little expensive for what you were getting, but they were definitely using that tax incentive as a selling point. It's like you get 10 years of cheap property taxes if you buy here. So that's one way you could go, I guess, but that doesn't seem like that seems like a pretty abstract selling point for most people. Well, it is. And I think that that, that particular development was an unusual situation. Most people wouldn't do that because it's not doesn't really benefit them personally. Um, and one of the things that I talked to the two council persons in my district, both Candace Mum and Karen Stratton, it's like, you know, can we restructure the multifamily tax exemption to, first of all, build greater than four units? I mean, we need more than four units. Um, and or um, can we do it to say rather than doing as a 10-year tax abatement, can we give it as some sort of a credit to the developer to make it happen? Yeah. Rather than rather than it being some sort of a thing that happens over eight or ten years, um, and tie it to the, the number of you know um, lower income units that you build. Right. You know there has to be that's the difference so between we, the eight. And we're the gonna at some point we're gonna need to still think about what price points these units are being built at because again so like there's this and I've, we've talked about this on the show in the past. There's this idea that if you if you just build enough housing stock, you'll eventually get stock that is uh, cheap enough for people to afford. So 
the, again, the, the, the incentive the developers have, like you said, you know, <laughs> what did you say? They'll, uh, something about, uh, like kicking their family out to, to make a buck. <laughs> that bulldozer mother. Yes. Yeah, that bulldozer mother <laughs> to make a buck. They're going to build a property that gets them as close to the maximum profit as possible. That's just the way capitalism works. Absolutely will be. The, the Apple computers we're using are built to maximize the profit that Apple gets. That's just the way capitalism works. In a, when you have a stable population, I still don't think this argument really holds water. But the idea is if, if, you, if the population doesn't really change and you're adding new ho- houses, eventually the st- what used to be a nice house will become more of a middle class house, will become more of a lower class house. And eventually people at the very bottom will get decent housing. But we've got like a thousand people moving to Spokane every month and we aren't building that many homes. So actually the opposite thing is happening where there's just not enough units for anybody. Even people, even people who are, I heard a story about somebody who's making like over a hundred thousand dollars a year has a job that's not supposed to be remote in Spokane, who is still living in Florida or something, working a job in Spokane remotely because they can't find housing at even at what would, what is a really good salary for Spokane. So we need to think about that, you know, and, and, and even if we were to bulldoze all of Spokane and make fourplexes, I don't think that gets us there because that would still take 30 or 40 years. So it does make sense to me that we need the fourplex thing alone is not going to solve the problem. We're going to need much denser development. We need we have to put the focus on more de- more dense development and and think bigger than fourplexes. Absolutely. And when I see sees see a vacant lots along center and corridors, both Division, uh, North Monroe, and all over downtown, it's like. You've got land sitting here waiting for you to build on. Yeah, Come on. Right. You know, you don't need a change in zoning. Build it here. Right. You know, we can tweak some things with Center and Carter, but you've got spots right now you could build on if yeah. if there if there was the will. Right. So I think that we've got to figure out a way to to jumpstart that. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is there has to be some sort of city, state, and or county plan to start building something. Despite all these problems, and it doesn't, there's not a lot of movement. There is some hope that the, the, the stuff on North Monroe might start moving again, but it's sort of a theoretical hope at this point. Despite that, are you seeing anything that gives you hope for, if not the immediate term, like into the future? Like, what, are things moving? Are people starting to have the right conversations? Is, there, is political will starting to be built? Like, is anything giving you hope? Well, if you, if you stop listening to people whose goal is to make it all sound horrible, Okay. You know, ignore those people for just a moment. I find, <laughs> you know, and, and there are some people out there who are beating the drum, for example, about the whole natural gas thing. You know, there were some people beating that drum. Right. It was it was going to be their political wedge issue. Well, it got pulled out from under them. But the reality is, is what gives me hope is, is we really do have a city council that is listening to our citizens and are trying to do something. I am very impressed by um, Council President Beggs and city council persons, even Michael Cathcart, who I'm not a fan of. (laughs) They all really are talking about what can we do to make a difference. And realistically speaking, as long as the neighbors, neighborhood councils are involved, the neighbors are involved, and they have a city council that's being responsive to them, that's how you affect change long-term and generational change. And I think the right people are talking. It's just a matter of cut through the noise and let's just get something done. And I think they're trying to do that. That's good to hear. Do you think there's a, at some point got to be like a time limit on talking though? Like, cause that's the thing you can talk yourself to death, can't you? Well, let me see. The North Monroe project started <laughs> being talked about in the mid eighties. I know. Well, and the, so like we, we have to get stuff pushed through faster than that. Don't we? Right. So how does, 
So that's okay. I, this is, that was the hopeful question. Damn it. Sorry, Gene. Uh, but it's like, I, I think there, my hope is that people see the, the concern because there is a, I think there is a crisis. I know you wanted to try to end on a, on a hopeful note. <laughs> Dang it. However, you know, let me, so we were recently, so I'm I, one of the things I try to do what I can to be involved in, in groups that try to make a difference. And so one of the things that I've been involved with was a group of people from all walks of life in a, in a group that is trying to focus on housing action subcommittee. So we're trying to look at how, what can we do to make a difference? You have some very divergent voices on there. And one of the things that isn't hopeful to me as an example is the tenants union um, was trying to get the tenants bill of rights, if you will, two different pieces of uh, ordinances that were going to be voted in by city council, but the realtors put a kibosh on it, stopped it from happening, stopped it from moving forward. Um, And like she said, she goes, we have talked about this for four years. Can we please just do something? And, and uh, Luke Jasmine was on this call and he said, what can we do? Let's just do something. And this group of people at least all agree that, hey, we don't agree on lots of things. What do we do agree on? Let's just do those six things now. Okay. And then do six more things. So um, they've been beating their head against a wall, some of those people, for many years. And I hear the frustration in their voices. Um, the, the head of the tenants union, I absolutely hear her frustration, and it came out on our last call. But they care, and they want to do something. And I believe that if nothing else – with voices like that and Luke Jasmine and some of these others, they're going to cut through some of the BS and we're going to actually get some small things done that can start that ball rolling somewhere. Gene Brake, thank you so much for coming on Range. Absolutely. Man. This is really, really fun. Yeah, it was Appreciate great. It. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. That's it for us this week. Going to keep the ending real short here, especially since I uh, completely <laughs> just completely went off on that 10 minute tirade about Yimbyism in the middle of the conversation. Like, I don't know, like, like Neil Pert in the middle of a Rush concert. Sorry, Gene, mind if I completely take over for a second? I know you're the expert here, but you're all such good sports for putting up with me. Thanks again to Gene Brake. Thanks as always to Kayla Brook, Connor Bacon, Brennan Pointer for helping me make this happen every single week. Much appreciated. Hey, Neil, man, uh, big fan, love your early work, but I'm trying to finish up a show here. Could we, could you just, can we stop for a sec? Thank you. Last thing before I go, if you like what we're up to here at Range, if you like us talking about some of the most important problems, issues facing the Inland Northwest and Spokane with some of the most interesting people, maybe anywhere, certainly in the region, Maybe you also like how we can go from talking about intractable problems like chronic housing shortages to lightly teasing the monsters of rock. We contain multitudes here at Range HQ, and if you like multitudes, let me tell you, multitudes don't come for free. They're actually kind of expensive, and we could really use your support to keep this thing going. So go to rangemedia.co slash subscribe to become a member of the Range family Hero of the extended range universe. That's it for me. (laughs) Clocking out at a uh, brisk hour and 26 minutes. See you next week, everyone. Bye.